0: You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, There is no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings the choice wine first and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and disciples believed in him.
1: Thank you, Josh. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open there. Uh, We're going to Finish John 1 today and uh, get into John 2. Uh, this last week, on Wednesday, uh, Corinne made coconut curry chicken for dinner. Okay, And all you need to know about that is this. Coconut curry chicken night's a good night. right? Uh, I, I can remember the first time she made it, I was, I was quite skeptical of this meal. Uh, I came home and I asked her what she was making for dinner and she told me uh, there was coconut curry chicken. This is what went through my head. Okay, coconut, don't like that. Right, I, I, in fact, I despise coconut curry. Not, not a fan of that. Right, chicken, that's okay, uh, but probably not when it's drenched in coconut and curry. Okay, uh, so I, but I try to be a good husband. I fail, but I try. Right, so I decided I was going to eat this with an open mind. And she'd worked hard on it. Right, and she, uh, they had protein and vegetables. so It was going to be good for my body. Right, and I, I could do this. And I, I went into that dinner seeing this as a chore. Right, that I was going to serve my wife and choked down this dinner because it was going to be good for me and my health and then I tasted it and my life changed. Now you might think, well that's a little dramatic, well then to you who think that I'll say this to you, if you've never enjoyed food enough to describe it as a life changing experience then I just feel sorry for you. Okay. And this meal that I thought was a chore was a joy, right? I devoured it. I got more and devoured that. I wouldn't get more. Eventually she cut me off because I would have made it unhealthy just by portion sizes alone, right? And now it's one of, one of the favorite things that she makes of mine. And in fact, when she told me this week, no lie, that she was making this for dinner, I literally picked her up and spun her around. I was so excited, right? Now, I hesitate to open with that because I know that for many of you, uh, the only thing you'll take from the sermon is you'll try to find her after this service and get the recipe from her, but I'm willing to take that risk. Because I use it, uh, to, because the point I'm trying to make is this Last week we opened uh, by talking about how we as a species We as humans have always underestimated God uh, We always look for less, we always demand less We always expect less than what he's actually working towards or offering us And one of the worst and most damaging ways that we do that Is, is when we underestimate what he is offering us Because we underestimate just how much God wants us to enjoy life He wants you to enjoy life with an intense and powerful joy. He wants you to experience fulfillment and peace and joy that is unmatched and is endless and never runs out. Because you and I were created to bring him glory. That's our purpose for existence. We exist to bring glory to God and not ourselves. But it's easy to figure out that you won't bring God glory if you're a grump all the time. But if all you do is complain and bicker and all you do is moan and you just really don't enjoy life, you're not bringing glory to God at all. So he's designed for you to experience joy. He wants you to have incredible peace during suffering. He wants you to have deep faith when there's no reason to have it. He wants your food to taste better. But He wants you to try and experience the fullness of the sunset and the stars in the sky. He wants you to go to work to a job knowing you're created to thrive in that position and bring him glory in it. He wants you to have a whole lot more get-tos than have-tos in this life will you see the to-do list that faces you every day as less and less things that you have to do and more and more things that you get to do. This is what he wants to offer us. But man, this is not what we believe about him. Right? We think that he exists to sap our fun. We see him as some sort of divine buzzkill. We think that he's, he's always serious and stern and only wants to keep us from things. And, and even if we grant him the grace that, that his protection is for our good, we see our faith as choking down a dinner because it's good for us rather than feasting on a meal that we love. And this is why so many worship services are emasculated and muted, why so many lives aren't mount, marked by boundless joys. It's why so many Christians still see themselves as victims. Because you don't know, or you don't understand, or you haven't grasped, or haven't submitted to the freedom and love and peace and joy that Jesus wants to just unload on you. So, as we go through this book of John, we're gonna see Jesus' unmatched and supreme authority. Right? He, he rules over everything. And yes, the call will be to surrender our wants and wishes and follow him. It will be to surrender all our dreams and future to him. It will be to humble ourselves before him in faith. But when we do, we are not submitting to a master who's going to lord over us or force us into some sort of labor camp or make us monks or rob our fun. We are submitting to the one who in John 10 will say, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus stated that his purpose in coming was to give you the fullest life possible. Far too often, we just don't look at it that way. So today, as we close out John 1 and start John 2, I want us to just notice him. I want us to take notice of what, of what, people, what Jesus actually invites people to, of, of where he goes, right? And ultimately, I, I want us to see that his intentions for our good and that he's the only one that can make those things possible. Over the previous two Sundays, we've covered two days that John tells us about in this chapter. And the first day, John the Baptist is being interrogated by the Jewish leaders, and he tells them that he's not the Messiah, uh, but that the Messiah is near and among them. And then later, John the Baptist sees Jesus and declares him the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And a couple of John's disciples leave John and go follow Jesus. And so Jesus starts collecting disciples for the rest of, the end of chapter 1. Those two, Andrew being one of them, they go and get Peter. And then in verse forty-three, that that Josh read for you this morning, Jesus calls Philip to follow him. Right? And when we read these early interactions that Jesus has with disciples, we learn this about him: that ever since the start of his earthly ministry, Jesus has been inviting people to play. Come and see, he tells Andrew and the other disciple. Come follow me, he tells Philip. We'll get to John 7, and he'll tell an entire crowd gathered at feast that any who are thirsty should come to him and drink. He's constantly inviting us to himself. He's constantly inviting people to come, literally, come and try me. Come and see who I am. Come and experience me. And this is throughout the Bible. This is Psalm 34, 8, when it says, just taste and see that the Lord is good. This is Isaiah 55, when when all who are thirsty and hungry are invited to come and eat and drink, but to come without money and accept it for free from God. This is Jesus extending his invitation to all who seek him. Just come. Come and check me out. Go ahead and come and find I'm, I'm like nothing out there. Come and find out that I'm different and better because I am. You see, we always underestimate God, but he never underestimates himself. And Jesus has this unshakable confidence that he's our greatest need. He has this unmoving belief that he's the greatest thing for us, and that the more and more and more we get of him, the better off our souls will be. And so he invites your presence. He invites your questions. He invites your scrutiny. He invites your seeking, because he knows you will discover what so many have. He's better than everything else out there. So I want to pause for just a second here and just tell you, if if you're here this morning, and this is you, you're, you're investigating... Right, you're, you're asking questions. You're, you're trying this out. You're trying to figure out what all this is. Man, we are so glad that you're here. Because Jesus is glad you're here. And He's inviting you. Just, just come and see. Just come and try me out. You'll find that I'm better than everything out there. Philip does this, right? He, he accepts the invitation, he follows. And it doesn't take long for Philip to realize this is the best choice he's ever made. And he can't keep it to himself. So in verse 45, he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel, and he tells Nathaniel, We found him, Nathaniel. All right, the one that that everyone's been waiting for, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about, the Messiah is here. And then he tells Nathaniel who he's speaking about. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. And now Philip and Nathaniel were from Bethsaida, we're told. And we find out quickly that Nathaniel's got a little prejudice in him. Nazareth, he says? I mean, can anything good come from Nazareth? Here's here's my theory. I'm thinking apparently the Nazareth football team had crushed the Bethsaida football team when Nathaniel was in high school, right? Because there's some bitterness there. Something had to happen, right? But you see, what what really happened is Nazareth had a reputation of a town where lower class individuals lived. In fact, to be called a Nazarene could be used as an insult. And so between being born in Bethlehem and being raised in Nazarene, I love the places that God chose when he came to us. Because God is never from where we would guess. I also love that John includes this little detail in us, this exchange between Philip and Nathaniel, because it shows that all of these guys were still a work in progress. All these disciples, right? Jesus didn't choose any of them because they were awesome or because they had it together. For one, Philip, with all his confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, still doesn't understand who Jesus is. When we think about it, for all chapter 1, we've been told that, that Jesus is not merely the son of Joseph or of a man from Nazareth. He's the eternal, almighty, all-powerful son of God. And so Philip's title for him is so, so much weaker than who he is. Nathanael, well, he comes off as skeptical and prejudiced and really just kind of a jerk. And yet Jesus is inviting. Because Jesus never waits for us to clean ourselves up before we can come to him or none of us could ever come. Isn't it, Just think about this. Isn't it great news this morning that we're all still a work in progress? Isn't it great news that God knew what he was getting when he got you? Right? As he knew that you were a fixer-upper. He knew that you were and are a sinner. He knew that you will mess up and sin, and yet he still came for you. He still loves you. He still called you to himself. He still died for you anyways. And, man, I don't know about you, but that gives me peace. Right. And Philip responds brilliantly to Nathaniel he, he could go after his friends prejudice right he could correct him he could engage him in a debate Christians try all those tactics still to varying degrees of success and failure but if we're honest mainly failure but Philip just borrows a line from Jesus why don't you come and see man I'm not going to argue with you on this one I, I'll tell you I will tell you this you got to come and see this guy for yourself because when you meet and when you experience and you eat, when you hear from Jesus, when, when he breaks through, who boy, you'll never be the same. And Philip's confidence was proven to be true. Look at verse 47 of John 1. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's first century version of Jesus saying, hey, look at this guy, right, as Nathanael But he uses a phrase, okay, he uses a phrase that would be meaningful in that day and and confusing for us today. He calls him an Israelite in which there is no deceit, okay? Now, by doing that, Jesus is referring to Jacob, the ancestor of the Israelites. Right, Jacob, the one who is renamed Israel, and his 12 sons' families made up the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob, if you remember his story in, in Genesis, Jacob's just full of deceit. Right? If, we, if you read his story in, in, that, in the Bible, he's tricking everyone. But Jesus pays Nathaniel a compliment here. You're from that line, but you, you have no deceit in you. And Nathaniel has a pretty good question for Jesus. Verse 48, uh, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you in the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Nathaniel here, yeah, mind blown, right? I mean, think of this. Think of the very first time you meet someone. They describe in intimate detail what you were doing earlier in that day when they weren't around. And so Nathaniel, just like that, he's convinced. You're the son of God, he tells him. You're the king of Israel. You're everything that Philip said you were, and you're actually more than he said you were. You're the one we've all been waiting for. And you'd almost expect Jesus to be like, well, this guy gets it, right? Thanks, Nathaniel. I've been trying to get people to see that, but that's not what he does, Instead, he's like, child, please. You think that's impressive? You think what I just did is impressive? You haven't seen anything yet. And then he tells Nathaniel this in verse 51. He added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is why he referenced Jacob to him earlier. Because in Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream in which he sees heaven open and a stairway extend that extends from heaven to earth. And on that stairway, all the angels in heaven are ascending and descending between heaven and earth, going back and forth. And Jesus is telling Nathaniel, now, you want to know something really impressive? On I'm that stairway. On that bridge. On the gap between heaven and earth. I get you there. I came down from heaven to make it possible for you to go back there with me on the stairway, on the bridge, on the path to heaven. Terrell Owens was one of the best wide receivers to ever play in the National Football League. He was just this ridiculous combination of size and speed. Okay, and so being so big and so fast, he was impossible to cover. He was an all-time great. Having said that, he had one flaw. Even though he was literally that great, and he was, he somehow believed he was even better than he was. See, self-confidence wasn't ever a problem for Terrell Owens. And so this led to turmoil and unnecessary angst and, and just really harmed relationships in the locker room. He was dismissed from several teams, even though he was a talent. But he did have at least one really funny line. Okay, he was in a press conference once bragging about how good he was going to play that week, about how great he was going to be. And he invited everyone, and I quote, to get your popcorn ready. Because he was going to put on a show that Sunday. All right, now you must know there's not an arrogant bone in Jesus' body. Okay, and we can know this for, for certain for two reasons. The first is obvious. He was completely holy. Okay? The second is this. It's impossible for Jesus to be arrogant. Think about it. There's not a single claim that he can make about himself that would be exaggerated. There's not a single confidence that he could have in himself that would not be justified. There's not a description that he would give himself that would go too far because he's just that great and just that awesome and just that divine. And so when he tells Nathaniel, basically, get your popcorn ready, Nathaniel's about to go on the ride of his life. And it will wrap up, Jesus tells him, with Jesus being the bridge from heaven to earth. And I hope they got their popcorn ready. I hope they were ready for a show because the very next day the show begins. The next day, look at start of chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, the first thing John tells us about this wedding, it was on the third day of the week. Now, the rest of the time, he's been saying the next day, the next day, the next day. But for this event, he specifies this is on the third day. And that's significant because every single time you find a third day story in the Bible, you find Jesus winning. Every third day story, he's triumphant over his enemies, he's triumphant over religion, he's triumphant over death itself. Third day stories are always stories of victory, and spoiler alert, Jesus is the one with the victory. And in this story, we find Jesus in the disciples he has acquired so far at a wedding. Notice for a second, he's not a social recluse. Right? He he didn't separate himself from people. He he put himself into community. He went to weddings and feasts and parties. He enjoyed the companies of others, and his enemies used this against him. They often claimed that he couldn't be holy by hanging out with all those sinners' ties, but Jesus' intentions were clear at these things. What Jesus did was he entered normal human experiences, and he sanctified them with his presence. He entered normal human experiences, and he made them not normal because he, being there, made them better. Tony Merida has this great line about witnessing when he says that, that evangelism is this. It is simply ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. And here's what he means by this. Just be you. Right? Just live your life. Just do what you enjoy doing, but invite Jesus into the ordinary. Go ahead and have your cookout. Go ahead and watch the game with your friends. Go ahead and go fishing with your neighbor. Go ahead and talk to others in life. Go ahead and go to work where you work. Just do what you do, but invite Jesus into your ordinary, and he makes it extraordinary. And we're wise to invite Jesus into our ordinary. We're wise to take him into our ordinary with us. This wedding in John 2 this wedding would have happened whether Jesus was there or not. It went on, they would have got married. And notice, when he shows up, he didn't turn the reception into a church service. Because his presence alone already made it holy. And his presence will change this from an ordinary wedding to a miraculous one. Because that's what he can do. Right? That's why all followers of Christ better have their popcorn ready. Because when you invite Jesus into your everyday, when you bring him into your ordinary, you never know what he might do. But when he moves, it's going to be awesome. Now, weddings today can be an extravagant affair, right? In fact, a concern uh, is that too many couples spend more time on the wedding than preparing for the actual marriage. And weddings can be stressful, right? There's a lot to plan. There's a a lot of people to account for, a lot of people to try to manage and and make happy. And it can just be exhausting and overwhelming. And so if you're planning a wedding right now, let me at least offer this hope and perspective to you. At least you're alive now. Because back in Jesus' day, weddings were a week-long affair, Okay, now listen to this, We're after the ceremony, guys, you, you'll hate this part, before the wedding, before the marriage could even be consummated, the bride and groom and their families would be expected to feed and entertain and care for their guests for seven days. This is insane, okay? If this existed today, I'm guessing you'd find a lot more guys believing they'd been called by God to singleness. That's just my guess, right? And what's more insane is this, that if you didn't come through on this, you'd be the ridicule of your community. It was this bad. If, if you ran out of food or wine, the town elders could fine you for it. And there was, there was nothing compared to the social stigma that you were the embarrassing loser who didn't plan your wedding well enough. And so in verse three, when Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they have no more wine, this is a loaded sentence. Right? It's loaded in a couple ways. Number one, this is a big deal. Okay? It's not like they can go across the street, pick up some Arnold Palmer's and bring it back. Right? This is a wedding disaster. But it's loaded in another way. Have you ever noticed how moms can make requests without ever stating the request? Right? Wives have this ability too, right? In fact, I would argue this is a gift that God gave to women uh, that can be used when they're in close relationship with someone. Jesus and his mom are very close. They know each other, so all she has to say is this. They've got no more wine. But what she's really saying is so much more than that. These are my friends. They have no more wine. And you and I both know that you can do something about this. Nobody else, here, nobody else here knows this, but I know and you know I know. So I'm just going to tell you the situation, and I'm asking you to do something about it. And Jesus knows what she's saying. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying, which is why in verse 4 he says, well, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour hasn't come. Now, when he says woman there, don't read that. Please don't read that. as Woman, mind your business. It's not what he was saying. This was a term of endearment and respect in that day. And what he's doing here is he's beginning to set up boundaries for her. And here's why we're told in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus, while growing up, was obedient and submissive to Joseph and Mary. But you see, his purpose in coming was so much greater than them. And he's begun the process. By John 2, he's begun the process of fulfilling that purpose. And now the roles are going to change. Now he must do the will of his father in heaven only. And if the will of his earthly mother ever contradicts with the will of the father, then he will follow the will of the father. And she will learn this lesson quite painfully when he goes to the cross. And when Jesus speaks of this hour, his hour, this is the theme you're going to see throughout John, that Jesus is always operating on a heavenly timeline. He's in control, and he knows when certain things should happen and when they certain. And John 2, this is not the time for a big public miracle. It's not the time to put on a huge display, and so he's, he's going to grant her a private, quiet one. I said, I don't know why he did it. Right? Maybe it was in deference to her faithfulness in raising him. Maybe it was just a gift of grace and love to his mom. But ultimately, it was a chance for Jesus to begin to display his glory to his disciples. And in verse 5, his mother calls the servants, and she, simp- she just says simply, do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you, just do it. And again, I-, I find myself impressed with what isn't said between Jesus and mother. She knows he's going to help. She knows he'll fix this. She doesn't even have to know how do what he says, she tells the servants. And then we get to see the very first miracle, the first sign, John calls them, of Jesus' ministry. And it's a miracle that goes unnoticed and unseen by all except the servants and Jesus and his disciples. And these signs will go from this one, this private, quiet one in John 2, and they will build it until John 11, where in front of an entire group of mourners who have come for a funeral, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead starting in John chapter 2 verse 6 we're told about the miracle look at verse 6 nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons and Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and so they filled them to the brim then he told them now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet and they did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine and he did not realize where it had come from though the servants knew the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs to which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now there's a reason, okay, that John calls Jesus' miracles signs. Right there in verse 11, he's told this was the first of the signs that Jesus did. The the idea that John is illuminating here, right, is that the miracles were more than just displays of power, that they had a bigger meaning, right? There's always a greater meaning, a greater lesson to these miracles, especially the ones that John records in his book, because here's the idea. It's cool and it's awesome that Jesus can turn water into wine. I mean, it's neat to think about, but it's not life-changing, but the greater lesson of the miracle and sign is life-changing and the key to understanding the greater lesson begins with those jars that we're told about in verse six these six stone jars each holding 20 to 30 gallons these are large jars and those jars were used for the jewish ceremonial purification rites these are one of, this was one of the traditions uh, added in by the pharisees and others were were, the, were these extended cleansing ceremonies in which you were to go through this whole ceremony before and after meals in which you purify yourself by washing in these jars and what's funny about these rituals is that Jesus completely ignores them in Matthew 15 the Pharisees want to know why Jesus never has his disciples practice these rituals in Luke 11 Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house and the Pharisee is shocked when Jesus just begins eating without going through the ceremony and why didn't Jesus observe these rituals because they were a waste of time because they were all for show because he didn't write them. He didn't command them. They, they added these in themselves, and because he's greater than all of their traditions and rituals and shows. Sorry, kids, you can't use this, for, you can't use Jesus' failure to do this for getting out of washing your hands before dinner. Okay, it's deeper than that, right? It just speaks to the religious culture of the day. And here's the religious culture of the day In the Old Testament, God set up a covenant with his people, Israel. And this covenant is spoken of again and again and again throughout the Old Testament as a marriage. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites are charged by God as being unfaithful to their marriage. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5 says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. In Jeremiah 31, 32, God says of Israel, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In Hosea 2, 2, God declares the people of Israel to be an unfaithful and adulterous wife. So what had happened was that God had established the people of Israel as his people, setting up this covenant, this marriage with them. And he gave them his law, and he gave them his presence, and he gave them his prophets. And they were to be set apart and unique and a light to the Gentiles and sanctified and holy, and they were unfaithful. And they served lesser false gods. And they literally, God says in Hosea, they literally hoard themselves out to other gods. And so by the time that Jesus arrives, God's people have been unfaithful to God. And now, in the day of Jesus, they're relying completely on themselves to be set apart and holy and unique. Instead of pursuing the covenant, instead of pursuing that God, they added to what he had given them. And they were putting all their hopes in what they added. Now they were pure and holy and set apart in their own minds because they observe all these laws and customs that God didn't give them. Now they're pure and holy in their own minds because they do all these outward displays of religion and they can look down on others who don't. And so at this wedding you have these jars that represent the current relationship between God and Israel. At a wedding of all places, the jars are empty, the wine is gone, the connection is gone, the covenant is broken, and no amount of ceremonial washing will ever fix that. And so Jesus tells the servants, "Fill the jars." And then he tells the servants to do something insane." He says, "Draw from the jar, draw water from it from these purification jars, and take it to the master of ceremonies." This was a, a wedding critic. This guy would declare your wedding a success or a failure, and, and he says, "Give him a drink. Now remember what those jars are used for. These are used for people to wash in and with. Nobody, I mean, nobody wants to drink water from those jars. This is taking a sip from a community bath. This is disgusting. But what do the servants do? They show faith. Remember what they were told by Mary? Do whatever he says, and they do. And I can't imagine, right, the nervousness they felt when they're bringing this cup of filth to the master of ceremonies. Only when he takes a drink, it's not dirty bath water. It's the finest wine he's ever tasted. You see, when God and his people, God called his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, he had for them, he used a man named Moses. And in Moses' life, did you know this? We see for the first time in the Bible, God using a man to perform miracles. And the very first miracle that God, that Moses did on behalf of God was that God used Moses to turn water into blood. As the Nile River in Egypt changes from water into blood, only this was the display of God's judgment and wrath on Egypt. Well, now Jesus is here, and he's going to usher in a ministry in which he'll perform countless signs, but the very first one, the very first one is turning water into wine, turning the water used to purify his people into his blood, because he has not come to pronounce judgment, he's come to pronounce grace. Because Jesus has come to restore the marriage between God and his people. He has come to be the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus has come to bring fullness where there is emptiness. He has come to reconcile humanity back to God. He has come to establish an eternal marriage, an eternal covenant between us and God. And he will do so not based on our ability to ceremonially purify ourselves on the outside, but based solely on his ability and his ability alone to purify us on the inside permanently forever. Because the water in those jars don't stand a chance against the sin in our hearts. But the wine he offers, the blood he will shed on the cross, is sufficient to forgive the sins of the world. That's why he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the master of the ceremonies takes this drink and he says, man, nobody does this. Nobody does this. Everybody brings out the best stuff first. And as the week goes along, you start bringing out the best stuff. But this is the best. Because God was giving us his best. He'd already created the earth. He'd already set apart his people. He'd already given them his law and his presence and his prophets. He'd already done a lot. But at the end of all that, it was a broken marriage, and religion was revealed to be worthless. So he sent himself. And he saved the best for last. And his best gift, his son, full of grace and truth, was now here. Listen, the applications of this, they're pretty clear. If you're trying to clean yourself up, if you're trying to earn your way to heaven or earn your relationship with God, you're doing nothing more than just splashing water on yourself. And your heart remains just sustained by the sin that's separating you from God as it was before. And try as you might, you remain separated from God and bound for hell until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And then he and he alone will be sufficient to forgive you of your sins, purify you from the inside out, and grant you eternal life with him. And if you haven't done that, man, we invite you. We call on you. No, we plead with you to do that today. Come and find what we've found, that there's nothing else like Jesus, that there's no one else like Jesus. There's no one else who can do for you what he can. We're just here at FBM. We're just a bunch of people who were lost in our sin, covered in our filth, despite our efforts to clean ourselves, and bound for an eternity in hell. And then we found Jesus to be everything he says he is. And he saved us, and he forgave us, and he reconciled us to God, and he's everything, and we're not over it, and we're not planning on getting over it anytime soon. So give your life to him today. And by the way, if you're a follower of his, then I can't put it any better than this get your popcorn ready, because Jesus Christ wants to invade your ordinary. He wants to invade your life. He wants, you to, he wants to give you the fullest, most abundant life possible. He wants to use you. He wants to use your current lot in life. He wants to use everything about you and your present and your past, and he can do amazing things. So will you live with one ear tuned to heaven and one ear tuned to earth? Will you invite him into every single aspect of your day? Will you actively look for where he is at work in your life and then join him? may, may we at FBN just stop underestimating who he is and what he wants to do in us and through us. And may we take Jesus to our weddings and our parties and our cookouts. May we take Jesus to our jobs and our neighborhoods and our grocery stores. May we take Jesus to the people that we see and interact with. To the places in our lives that we never once thought of as spiritual. And discover that he alone makes the ordinary extraordinary. Wherever you go, he's there and he's working and he's inviting us to play. So Play. Just be ready, because he's going to move. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you reign over every single aspect of life. God, that there's nowhere, according to Psalm 139, that we can go that your presence is not there. That there's no time, according to Jesus in John 5, that, that, that you and he are not at work. And so, Lord, we pray for, for the work that you're doing in this room right now. God, if there's one in here who, who up until this day, they, they've, they've been investigating, they've been asking questions, or they've been, they've been banking on their own good works, their own cleanliness to get, be, to, to get to you. God, may they put their faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the blood of Jesus alone. We pray that they would surrender to you this morning, and that you would save their souls. God, for the rest of us who've done that, but, but, but far too often in our lives, we're just going on autopilot. Lord, we're, we're checking things off a to-do list, we're, we're overwhelmingly busy, we just go from one thing to the next without really any thought or consideration to, of you throughout our day, and we're missing out on so many invitations to play. God, may we play this week. May we invite you into our everyday. May we invite you into the places that we never considered you in before. May we see you at work and just be used as faithful servants and faithful tools for your glory. And will you put on a show for us, Lord? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.